On December 10, 2008, Bernie Madoff confessed to masterminding the largest Ponzi scheme in the history of the United States. He swindled an estimated $64.8 billion away from his investors. As you might imagine, the investors were none too happy with this. And over 16,000 people filed suit against Mr. Madoff. Now humor me by allowing me to ask you a question that has a somewhat obvious answer. Why were these people upset? Why were they, why were they angry about what Mr. Madoff did? He lost their money! They were upset because you care about what you are invested in. You care about what you are invested in. A short paragraph at the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 16 this morning. And I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, when I began studying this week, I looked at 1 Corinthians 16, and, and it almost is like just random thoughts from Paul. Well, house cleaning, an announcement here, a, a uh, what's a word about my travel plans there, and then I need to sign off. And really, the whole thing does actually hang together under the broad theme of the whole letter of Corinthians, which is love. Paul, if you notice, he doesn't sign off on his letter. The last thing he doesn't write is, it's not mean. The Corinthians have mistreated Paul in a number of ways, right? They're not high on Paul. They don't think he's all that great, and he responds to all of their concerns throughout the letter. And you might expect him to end the letter, you're the worst, Paul. Right? I kind of, and when we, we pick up this letter, we almost expect him, when we know its contents already, we almost expect him to begin the letter by, you guys have this whole Christianity thing wrong. I don't even know if you're really Christians. But at the beginning of the letter, that's not how he starts. He starts out blessing them and telling them how much he thanks God for them and how confident he is in God's ability to fulfill his purposes in them. How happy he is that God has given them every spiritual gift that's necessary for the building up of their church. And likewise, he ends this letter not with a word of rebuke, but with a word of tender care. Verse 24, My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. The idea of love and unity and, and holiness are pre, three primary themes of Corinthians. And I think it's this idea of love and unity that's underneath these four short verses in 1 Corinthians 16. And I told you initially I had a visions of a larger sermon, but what happened was I stumbled over these verses. And, and I want to cause you to stumble over them with me this morning. It's very easy to just read short sections of Scripture like this and in one ear and out the other. But, but as I was studying this week and meditating on this, I went, God, there is, there's so much here for us. There's so much here for me. Paul is encouraging, we'll see, he's encouraging the Corinthian church to invest in the kingdom of God by investing in the Jerusalem church together. 
He's calling them to unity with one another and with Christians elsewhere by calling them to invest together in others, to make an investment in the kingdom of God. And that's the the main idea of the sermon this morning is that Christians invest in the kingdom of God and the exhortation follows suit. To be the church and to invest in the kingdom of God. Invest in the, the big C, all Christians everywhere, church. Let's pray and we'll get started. God, we need your help this morning because your word is living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword and, and it cuts. But God, we thank you that your word cuts in order to heal. We pray that we would be cut this morning so that we might become more like Christ. That we might be led to repentance. So that we might more faithfully honor you with our lives and our hearts. God, I pray that you would help us to listen well to what it is you say to us in this short paragraph. This we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So verse one, now about the collection for the saints, do the same as I instructed the Galatian churches. On the first day of the week, each of you is to set something aside and save in keeping with how he is prospering so that no collections will need to be made when I come. When I arrive, I will send with letters those you recommend to carry your gift to Jerusalem, if it is suitable for me to go as well, they will travel with me. So five observations this morning. Five observations from these four verses. First observation is this, and it comes from verse 2. On the first day of the week, Paul's assumption here is that this Corinthian church of new Christians is meeting on the first day of the week. This is significant because normally pagans wouldn't have a particular meeting time. They would not gather together at the same time to worship deities. And Jewish folks that had converted to Christianity, well, they, they were used to meeting on the Sabbath. And so what we have here in Corinthians, and it's corroborated by the rest of the New Testament, is evidence that Christians very early on are gathering together at an appointed time during the week. And that time is the first day of the week. Christians meet on Sunday, or as John calls it in Revelation, the Lord's Day. They are gathering together regularly. It's Paul's assumption that this gathering would be the best time to take up money for the poor in Jerusalem. But I think the first application to make from this text is the importance of gathering together as the church regularly. You'll see in your outline, that's the first investment must make. Part of our investment in Christ, it shows up in our investment in one another, right? If you read uh, 1 John, we see over and over again, the person who says, I love God but hates his brother does not know God. Part of how we have our faith assured 
is by being around other Christians who confess the same gospel and say, yes, they, they are a Christian. Part of how we're encouraged in the faith is our obedience to Hebrews 10, to not give up gathering together. And we gather together regularly to regularly celebrate Christ, to regularly remember the subject matter of chapter 15, the glorious resurrection. We come together to, to remind one another after we have had messy lives and, and just bad weeks sometimes, drag our sorry butts in here to sit together. We remind one another, this is not the end. Keep working, brothers and sisters. Be steadfast and immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work because your labor is not in vain. Your faith is not in vain. Christ was crucified for our sins, buried and raised on the third day. Take heart, friend, there is a resurrection coming. When we come together as the church and we invest in one another, we are investing in God's kingdom. As we build one another up in accord with 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. Remember the theme there, Paul is saying, build one another up. Use your spiritual gifts to build one another up. Build up the church. Love one another. If something builds up and is not done in love, well, then it's not really building up. It's tearing down. Paul, over and over again, invest in what God is doing in your church. You are the body of Christ. Friends, there's no such thing as a Christian that just loves people that are like them. There's no such thing as a Christian that's divorced from a local church. The Bible has no concept of that. The Bible says you are the body of Christ. And the way that you know you are knit on to Christ is if whatever your gift is, maybe you're a finger or a toe, is that you're sewn onto Christ's body. Your love for the body of Christ, your love for Jesus is expressed often in your love for his church, your love for his bride. And you can't say to Jesus, look, I love you, Jesus, but your bride disgusts me. I think I said it a few weeks ago. I don't remember. Maybe I didn't. But if, if I say to Chelsea, girl, you know, you've got it going on. You're, you're charming. Uh, you laugh in a, a cute little way. You work hard. Um, you know, you're smart. But there's just one thing. Your body disgusts me. Could you cover that up? Gross. Like, things are not going to work out well for me. Because to love my wife is to love her body. Likewise, to love Jesus means to love his body. Not in a way that's ethereal. Well, I love the body of Christ, Christians everywhere. But in a way that is committed. A way that actually causes me to have to love someone that's not like me, or that rubs me the, the wrong way. Similar to being in a family, right? If you're in a family, you have to put up with those people. But if you're not in a family, you go, that person rubs me the wrong way, guess what? Don't have to see him, praise God. But, but as a church, you know, that person rubs me the wrong way, guess what? Jesus died for that person. Jesus loves them enough to die for them. What does that mean for me? How then should I love them? If Jesus was willing to forgive them, how, how much more willing should I be willing to forgive them? Seven times 77. 
We should be willing to invest in the church, invest in one another, invest in gathering together, because investing in gathering together is an investment in Jesus' kingdom. It builds the church. It's observation number one, that the Corinthians, Paul assumes, are invested in gathering together on the first day of the week which celebrates Jesus' resurrection. And that's why we celebrate this morning. And as part of that celebration, we see that each of you is to set something aside and save in keeping with how he is prospering. It's interesting who is doing the giving in this verse. Do you guys see it in verse 2, who's giving here? Each of you. Everyone is responsible to give something to this collection. But there's not a flat rate here. Not a call to 10%. It says, set something aside and and save and keep with how God, that's the he there, God is prospering you. I think there's been a lot of confusion around the idea of tithing. I think the traditional way to understand it is you go to the Old Testament, at some point there were uh, 10% tithes required, and so that's what we are supposed to tithe in the New Covenant. The funny thing is, if you actually go back and add up all the different tithes that are required of Israel in order to sustain the Levites and the other people, it adds up to over 20%. So if we want to keep that guideline, we need to move it over to 20%, which, hey, go get, get after it if that's what you want to do. But here's the truth of what the New Testament teaches us. Tithing is not required. There's no 10% tithe in the New Testament. You will will look in vain in the Scriptures for that command because Christ has fulfilled the law. But what we are asked to do is to seek to excel in giving as an act of grace Paul tells the Corinthians to take up this collection here, and then they've been taking it up, but they haven't quite completed that collection. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, he's writing to them again, and all these churches have banded together to give to the church in Jerusalem. And this is what he writes to the Corinthians in regards to this same offering. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 7. Now as you excel in everything, in faith, speech, knowledge, and in all diligence, and in your love for us, excel also in this act of grace. The act of grace he's speaking of is giving. I'm not saying this as a command. Rather, by means of the diligence of others, I am testing the genuineness of your love. How you give is a test of the reality of your love. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, for your sake he became poor. So that by his poverty, you might become rich. Paul says, don't give because there's a command or a percentage. Give because you love Christ. And you love Christ's people. Seek to excel in this act of grace. You know why? Because Jesus made himself poor so that you could become rich. 
we were all as that famous prodigal son, wallowing in the mud with the pigs at the end of ourselves. And Christ came to us and said, you, exchange places with me. I'll sit down in the mud with the pigs. I'll take the pain that you deserve. And you go home to my father. He'll put a coat on your back and a ring on your finger and throw you a party. That's what's happening at the cross. As Jesus is taking the punishment that is due our sin, that's due us for saying, God, I'm going to follow my heart rather than listen to your voice. I'm going to do life my way. I'm in rebellion against you, God. I deserve to die. We deserve to die the death of rebels. And what Jesus does is he says, no, no, God, don't kill these rebels. I'm going to be killed for them. Don't hang them on the gallows. Hang me on the cross in their place. And Jesus dies for our sins. For the sins of all who will trust in him by faith. He becomes poor so that we might become rich. And then God, in order to show that this sacrifice is satisfactory, that Jesus' blood is enough to purchase us back from the brink of death, that Jesus' death is enough to bring us back into the family of God, He raises Jesus from the dead for our justification. And so Paul here is saying, excel in this act of grace. Show the genuineness of your love for Christ and for Christ's people. It's not a command. But you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich for your sake, he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Verse 10, And in this matter I am giving you advice, because it is profitable for you, who began last year not only to do something, but also to want to do it. They've begun to take this offering. They want to take this offering. Now also finish the task, finish taking the collection, so that just as there was an eager desire, there may also be completion according to what you have. For if the eagerness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Let me read that last verse again. The gift is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. We're going to put that together with each of you is to set something aside, verse 2 of chapter 16, and save in keeping with how he is prospering. So here's, here's the bottom line. There's no 10% command in the New Testament. Now, practically, for many Christians for a really long time, that's just served as a great baseline for their giving. And if that's you, great, keep doing it. Wonderful. But what Paul says is, give in according, according to how God is blessing you, in light of the generosity that Jesus has given to you, so to be generous to others. So to be generous to giving unto Jesus' people in Jesus' church. Seek to be generous. Seek to excel in this act of grace. And so, the question I think is, for us, am I giving according to how God is blessing me Or am I giving according to what I can get away with? Am I giving 
because, hey, I just need to get my 10% and the rest is mine? Or am I going, God, how much can I give? How can I help your kingdom grow? I also want to point out that for some of us, this also means, some of us this might mean giving more, but for others it might mean giving less. Like my, my practical counsel to, to people that say to me, I, I'm barely meeting ends meet. That's not really a good way to say it, but I'm, I'm barely making ends meet. I'm barely able to pay my bills. Should I give? And my counsel to them is usually, right now, probably not. Lock down your food and water and shelter. Because if you give us that 10%, you know what, as the church, if you're a member here, we're just going to turn around and be paying your bills for you. So pay your bills, pray, ask for God to prosper you more so that you might give more. Sometimes in our lives, it might mean giving 2%. I'm talking about like real needs, not like, you know, I don't know, I need to have tables. Like that's not a real need. Maybe it is for some, but, but it's not a, you know what I'm saying? And so, so for some of you, it might mean giving 2%. Some, it might mean 22%. Maybe God has blessed you so much that you, you know, you're in that category that Madoff was in before he went to prison. You know, you've got billions. If you are, welcome. And maybe you need to give 90%. Because God's blessed you so much that that 10% is still worth more than 99% of what other people make, right? That's what Paul's saying. Be wise and be generous. That's the call of the Christian in the New Testament. Called to be generous, to support the preaching of the gospel and the growth of the kingdom of God. We, we want to invest in our gathering and we want to invest according to how God is prospering. In this next part of this, Paul says, make this investment, take these collections so that no collections will need to be made when I come. When I arrive, I'll send with letters those you recommend to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it is suitable for me to go as well, they will travel with me. He's saying, very interestingly, take out this money now before I get there because I don't want a collection to be taken when I arrive. Uh, the reason for this is twofold. One, uh, there are famous orators in Corinth who speak for money. And Paul wants to ensure that everybody knows that when he shows up to preach the gospel, it's for the church not for himself. He doesn't even want to open up himself to the accusation, hey, you know this Paul guy? He's just in it for the cash. Not even that great of a speaker anyway, but he just came to get the money. You see, he took a collection when he showed up and then just took off to Jerusalem. He's in it for the money. No, he, he's making clear that he's not in it for the money. He tells them that back in uh, 1 Corinthians 9. He says, I could demand to be paid by you, but I'm not. I'm, he's, the ox is uh, worthy uh, to, is it, I can't remember the phrasing of it, but the ox treads out the grain, should be able to eat something along those lines. You can look it up in 1 Corinthians 9 later. He says, I've not taken advantage of that. I've given it up for your good so that the gospel might not be undercut or compromised. I don't want, he doesn't want his ministry to be compromised by uh, questions about his motivations for his ministry. And then secondly, he also says he, he's not going to touch or carry the money. He wants them to send somebody they trust. That's what this letter business is about, to kind of verify that they're the uh, couriers of the letters and take it with them to Jerusalem. And he's kind of like, hey, if it makes sense at that time, I'll go with them too, maybe, I don't know, whatever the Lord wills. 
I think here, though, he's showing us just really good practice. Saying, I'm not even going to carry the money with me because somebody could then again level the accusation at me that I'm in it for the money, that I'm here to get my hands on the money. He says, I'm not willing to compromise the message of the gospel in any way. I'm taking extreme measures to make sure everybody knows what I'm about. I think that the principle here is fairly easy for churches, that, that we want to invest our money that, we, that is given generously, clearly and carefully. We want to make it clear that the money people give is getting to where it's supposed to go, and we want to be careful about it. We, we don't want to open ourselves to any kind of accusations that could potentially undermine or compromise our ministry as a church. And so as a church, we want to invest clearly and carefully. Next, notice that where this money is going. It's not staying in Colrin. It's going to Jerusalem. You can hear some of the objections the Corinthians might have. Aren't there poor people in Corinth we can give our money to? Why we got to send it all the way? It's going to cost us extra money to send these, quarry, these people to carry this gift to Jerusalem. And there are poor people here. You know, and if we take care of the poor here, then maybe we have some extra we can pay for the parking lot. It just doesn't make sense to send money to the poor in Jerusalem. Isn't there a church there that can sustain them, Paul? Very similar to uh, a claim I often hear young missionaries struggle with. They, they tell their home church or their family and friends, I'm going uh, into the 1040 window where Jesus is not known to preach the gospel and plant a church. And people tell them, aren't there lost people here that you can reach? And the answer to both of these objections is yes. Yes, there are lost people here that need reached. Yes, there are poor people here that need cared for. But great news. The rest of the church is here. The rest of the church is here. You are here to reach them. You are here to care for them. And Paul is saying there's something going on in Jerusalem that requires our help. The church can't sustain itself at this point. It can't, it can't feed itself. They're poor. History tells us there was a significant famine in that area during this period of time. The people cannot eat. They're dying. And Paul is saying, you can help, help. Send money to them. Not, not to the exclusion of their ministry there or the poor in Corinth, but in addition to He's saying it's not a here or there question. He's saying you, you need to give or invest of yourselves both here and there. He's telling them to invest in another church. Friends, other churches are not our competition. They are our co-laborers. I think it's really, really easy to think and behave as if our church or your church is the only good church. And that's just not true. God is at work in all churches who are true churches and faithful to uh, 
the gospel, Christ crucified for our sins, raised from the dead. That's what I mean when I say church. He uses all kinds of churches in all kinds of places. They're on the same team as us. So to view other churches as competition is akin to a football team's defense getting angry at its offense for scoring points. It doesn't make any sense. We're wearing the same jersey, working towards the same goal. Our, our church is an embassy of the kingdom of heaven. And heaven's kingdom is in every nation on this planet. And there's little embassies everywhere. And we're working together towards the same goal, towards the same end. And so we want to invest in other churches because we want God's kingdom to advance not only through us, but through others. Through others God has called to ministry. This is why we give to the well. They sent us a thank you note. You can put it in the back so you can read it. They're excited. God is moving over in Lovingston. He's calling sinners to salvation. This is why we support Uptown Church in Martinsville. It's why we invest in them. They've seen many poor come to Christ. We invest because we are not about our kingdom as a church, but about God's kingdom. So we invest in other churches. We, we want to see the gospel go forth in our county, in our state, and beyond our country. This is why we give to the Southern Baptist Convention's cooperative program, right? Cooperative program, if you don't know what it is, it's the SBC that shows up on your budgetary thing. And all that money goes into a, something called the cooperative fund. And part of it, a percentage goes to making theological education affordable so that new ministers can be trained up. A portion of it goes to North American church plants. Another portion of it goes to international missions. And the International Mission Board is an arm of the Southern Baptist Convention that sends, it's the largest missionary sending agency in the world. And it is supported through our giving to the cooperative program and our giving to the Lottie Moon offering at around Christmas time. And a neat thing about Lottie Moon is all that money just goes directly to international church planting or international missions. You can give to Lottie Moon anytime you want. They'll take your money, trust me. In the SBC, this cooperative program, what's really neat about it is it takes a bunch of little itty-bitty churches like ours that could never afford to sustain missionaries on our own. And it pulls all their funds together and sends more missionaries than any other agency. It's churches who believe the gospel working together, investing together to advance God's kingdom in the world. Other churches are not our competition. Our church exists to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the lost. We want to invest in what God is doing here and in what He is doing there. We want to have hearts that go beyond our own walls. And I know personally that too often I am too selfish in this regard. I wonder, do, are you involved in investing in other churches? Are you involved in what God's doing in the world? Because all of us 
How we're involved is up for debate, but that we're involved isn't. All of us are called to, to go or give or pray. Any combination of the three at any point in your life, we need to be doing, we need to be involved. I wonder, do you pray for other churches? I wonder if you've, if you've ever prayed for revival in the valley. If you've ever prayed for the church to be flourished and for many to come to know Christ. And I wonder if you have prayed that and God saw fit to answer it, but he answered it in the church down the street, would you still be excited about it? Would you be okay if God answered your prayer for the lost to be found, but he did it through another church? That will reveal your heart. Are you committed to your church or are you committed to the church? Where are you investing yourself and your time and your prayers? Are you investing in other churches? Another interesting wrinkle here. I'm going to read the passage to you again. About the collection for the saints, do the same as I instructed the Galatian churches. On the first day of the week, each of you is to set something aside and save in keeping with how he is prospering, so that no collections will need to be made when I come. When I arrive, I will send with letters those you recommend to carry your gift to... You see where this gift is going? Jerusalem. Interesting thing. The church in Jerusalem is going to be made up predominantly of Jews that have come to Christ. Whereas the church in Corinth and in Galatia is going to be made up of Christians that are predominantly Gentile. Jews and Gentiles do not like each other. They are hundred years, hundreds of years bitter rivals. They are the Jets and the Sharks in West Side Story. Uh, they are um, Michigan and Ohio State. They're the Yankees and the Red Sox. I would use UVA in Virginia Tech, but uh, UVA hasn't beat Virginia Tech since MySpace was cool. And so I think you have to win for that to be a rivalry. I don't know. It's been a while in football anyhow. But the point is they don't like each other. They don't like each other. And Paul does something really cool. He calls them to invest in unity by investing in someone that's different than them. And remember, too, the Corinthian church is divided also. I follow Paul back in chapter 1. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. And Paul says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? He says, no. Christ is united. And what this call to give to the Jerusalem church does is it unifies in two ways. It causes the Corinthians to invest together in others together and people of a different ethnicity together. And guess what? You care about what you are invested in. And so he, he causes them to use their financial resources to bring about love and unity, both within their church here and in the universal church there. You know, money, the love of money is the, the root of all kinds of evil. But for the person who loves Christ, money becomes the root of all kinds of good. 
I think the ready application of this text for today in terms of ethnic divides applies to the separation between black and white Christians. It's true still that Sunday service worship hour is uh, the most segregated time of the week. If you're somebody looking for a reason to not believe the gospel, the divisions that persist between black and white Christians seems to be a pretty good one. Especially when you consider U.S. history. And white Christians enslaving not only people made in the image of God, but people made in the image of God who believed the gospel. The enslavement of brothers and sisters. This does not look like self-giving love. This does not look like unity in Christ. And some of the segregation that persists in churches around America today still gives the non-believer a reason to not believe the gospel. You say that this Jesus can unite, but you don't look too united. We want to look at this as an opportunity to invest in other churches that aren't like us and other Christians that aren't like us. We have a wonderful opportunity to prove that what, what Jesus says really is true. When black churches and white churches work together and when black Christians and white Christians worship in the same space, it is a Powerful apologetic. It is a beautiful thing. What we don't want to do, though, and I think this is what typically I usually don't get as a a white person, (laughs) Uh, we don't want to erase cultures and backgrounds. And what I mean by that is uh, it's sometimes popular to say, as a Christian especially, well, I'm colorblind, I don't see color. Everybody's the same. But as Christians, that, that's, not, that's not what we want to do. We, we don't want to practice color blindness, but color brightness. God has called people from every cultural background, every tongue, every tribe, every nation, and he's called all of them to glorify him from their culture, from the way he's made them. There are still nations in heaven. There's still culture there. There's still uh, different shades of skin there. And all of us glorify God in a unique way. So it's just not wise to pretend that there are cultural distinctives that don't exist. It's not wise to pretend like the way that we do church is evacuated of all cultural influence. I mean, just think about it. The way we do church is pretty white here. All right, most of, all of us are white, except for my foster kids. Like, just think about how you listen to a sermon, right? Is uh, usually we're pretty quiet. You guys let me talk and think, because you know I have trouble thinking when people talk sometimes, I guess. But if you go to a black church during the sermon, it's a little bit wild, right? There's a lot of response, right? Say something. Amen. My favorite is, my, my. There's some hand-raising going on. 
And this is typically, it's just a cultural difference. It's not good or bad. But it's a way that church is done and expressed in a way that's different. I think it's important for us to acknowledge these things. It's also fun when uh, we have visitors from other cultures or backgrounds come in and maybe like the sermon, for instance, they're used to uh, participating a little bit more. And that, you know, they'll start participating. And from my perspective, everybody's head turns. Like, did they, did they just say something during the sermon? Is, is he allowed to do that? And I'm usually a little surprised too. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> but, and then I start to like it a little bit. You know, but, but the point here is that we're different. And we don't want to pretend that those differences don't exist. We want to celebrate them. And we want to invest in people that are different than us. We want to invest ourselves in creating a, a church culture here that is welcoming to any people of color. That not only says, you're welcome here as long as you do things our way, but that we're so about unity, we want to do some things your way too. We are willing to be made uncomfortable for the sake of unity. We want to invest in unity by investing in churches and in people that are different than us. We don't want to erect walls that Jesus died to tear down. Turn to uh, Ephesians 2, verse 11 through 22. Paul writes, So then remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called uncircumcised by those called the circumcision, which is done in the flesh by human hands. Verse 12, At that time you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. Christ died not only to bring us peace with God, there was hostility there. God's wrath bears down on sinners who are not covered beneath the blood of Christ. That's what we've earned with our lives. Under his wrath, there's hostility between rebellious sinners and the holy, perfect, and just God. 
Jesus dies and puts to death that hostility when we put our faith in him. He brings us peace with God, and he also brings us peace with each other. See, those who are united by faith to Christ are also united to one another in the body of Christ. We need to live in such a way that that this is true. That when people see the, the type of unity that exists in our church that's not based upon homogenous relationships, people in the same age demographic as us, people in the same ethnicity as us, they're going to look and go, what is going on here? This gospel must be true. Christ really has torn down the dividing wall of hostility that existed between different people of different races and different cultures. He's torn down the dividing wall of hostility that existed between God and man. He has brought peace. It's true. How we invest ourselves in others and one another, how we invest in other churches, well, it tells the truth, it tells a story to whoever's watching about what we value, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It also tells people about the reality of the gospel. How you invest will either be an apologetic that proves the gospel to be true or proves it to be something you say you believe but not really. We want to be the kind of people that prove God's word to be true. That prove that Jesus Christ really did raise from the dead to save sinners like us. The way that we repay him is by seeking to excel in the act of giving. Giving of our lives to one another. We, we want to live out truly the notion of a new humanity that's clothed in Christ. A new humanity, people that really are citizens together in God's kingdom, family together in God's household, stones that are being placed together in God's temple. Let's invest ourselves in the kingdom of God and the advance of the church Let's prove ourselves to have hearts that are not all about us. Hearts that go beyond the walls of this building and unto the nations. Let's not be candles hidden beneath a bowl, but as stars that light up the night sky. Let's pray. God, your word is true, and we are sinful. We, we need your grace to lead us into repentance. We need your grace, your spirit to empower us to believe what you've said. We need your spirit to help us work out this great salvation with fear and trembling. God, sometimes we, we try to take hold of the things you've promised us without recognizing that 
there is an obedience required on our part in order to enjoy them. Yes, Christ has obeyed perfectly so that when we disobey, we might still be forgiven and and reconciled to you. But we still have a part to play in this thing, God. You still call us to live according to the Spirit rather than the flesh. God, we pray that you would help us, our church, to live according to that Spirit, to keep in step with your Spirit, that we would be a church that is aimed at glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ, edifying the saints, and evangelizing the lost together with your church everywhere. God, help us to invest both here and there. Pray for other churches to give to your cause, to invest ourselves in the Great Commission. This we ask in Jesus' name, amen.